we're celebrating an all-American 4th of July today on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and we've got ideas for enjoying some of the iconic must-see parts of the United States coming up in the hour ahead. We'll start with a sort of patriotic pilgrimage to our nation's capital, with help from our friends at the National Museum of American History. Their recently opened First Lady's exhibit takes you from Martha to Michelle, and it's attracting a lot of attention. Then we'll get clued into one of the greatest shows on Earth, the window seat view on your next flight over the USA. The author of a detailed guide to seeing North America from the air will tell us which flights are most scenic and what to look for to help you better understand the role the land itself plays in shaping our nation. And a novelist who lives near the Grand Canyon will explain how the canyon adds a certain spirit to the characters she writes about. Here I am, somebody who's in love with the Grand Canyon, and I hope people can feel that through my characters. There's a lot to explore from our nation's capital to the southwest. Your Window on America is coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. From the patriotic inspiration you get from delving into our nation's history in Washington, D.C., to the transcendent feeling you take home after a trip to the Grand Canyon, as well as a bird's-eye view of the land in between. We're traveling the USA on today's Travel with Rick Steves. In this season of the 4th of July, a lot of us are thinking about civic pilgrimages. And if you want to make a civic pilgrimage, the place to go is Washington, D.C. We're joined today by uh, two people from the Smithsonian Institution. Melinda Machado is the Director of Public Affairs from the National Museum of American History. And Lisa Kathleen Grady is the curator at the Museum of American History. Melinda and Lisa Kathleen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You two are residents of Washington, D.C. What should we have on our list if we're civic pilgrims to our nation's capital? Well, I think the American History Museum is a wonderful place to start. Everyone comes to Washington to see the Capitol and the White House and all of the monuments and Arlington Cemetery and and all of the the mall itself, the the great things you can see there. And the natural next stop is to come right on into the American History Museum, right off the mall, and see all of the national treasures that we have there. We have the desk on which Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, wrote the Declaration of Independence. Wow. Great 4th of July object, on which, I might add, we tend to open it up on the 4th of July. It's the one time in the year we open it all the way out so that you can see the writing surface itself. Wow. Give me a list of five or six things in the Museum of American History that really would remind us from where we came as a nation. Well, I think there's Jefferson's desk, the Star-Spangled Banner, obviously, the new centerpiece of our building, Abraham Lincoln's top hat, Abraham Lincoln's suit, for that matter. Um, We have Michelle Obama's inaugural gown, a recent acquisition by the museum that many people are coming in to see. We have, actually, we have the gold sovereign, one of the remaining gold sovereigns that James Smithson gave to the United States government to found the Smithsonian Institution. So you can actually come see the money that built your museum. What's a gold sovereign? A gold sovereign is an English coin. James Smithson was an Englishman who out of pure altruism, decided that when he died, he would give his money to the United States government to create an institution to be called Smithsonian that would increase and diffuse knowledge. And the gold came over in bags of gold sovereigns, which were gold coins, and two remain. So Smithson, Smithsonian, James Smithson, is that still possible if somebody wants to just, like, give all their money to the Smithsonian? Absolutely. <laughs> Would you, just let us know. <laughs> just let us know. Smithsonian.org. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll bring a truck. <laughs> <laughs> Smithson, what an inspiration. Lisa Kathleen, you mentioned the First Lady's collection, and I understand, okay, Michelle Obama presented her gown, the one she wore at the 2009 inaugural balls, but this mm-hmm. has been almost 100 years that you've had this exhibit. Just about. The exhibit started in 1914, and the first First Lady to donate her own inaugural gown was Helen Taft uh, in 1912 as they were building the collection. She donated her 1909 inaugural gown, which is also white and silver. It makes a wonderful pairing, our 1909 Helen Taft white and silver gown and our 2009 Michelle Obama white and silver gown. So you have a couple dozen cases actually showcasing these dresses over the last century of inaugural Mm -hmm. balls of inaugural balls and just other gowns that represent the First Ladies. The oldest dress in our collection belonged to Martha Washington, but it's not an inaugural gown. Martha was still at Mount Vernon packing (laughs) when uh, George was sworn in in New York. They didn't have to go to 14 different balls with all the television cameras on them and so on. (laughs) Now, uh, I understand that originally uh, these ball gowns were worn by people called the mistresses of the White House. It's a wonderful name, isn't it? What's with that? Uh, 
it's so much tamer than it sounds. Uh, when the <laughs> sounds exciting, the, I'm going to go to this. It exhibit. sounds exciting. The mistresses when, of the White House. When the exhibition was started, the collection was started by Mrs. Hoos and Mrs. James, who were volunteer curators at the Smithsonian. Mrs. Mrs. Hoos was actually descended from President Monroe, so she had an in to get material and. Um, as they started to try and acquire material, you, they couldn't always acquire something that belonged to the wife of the president. And the, not all the presidents had wives. So they decided to go with the idea of the first lady being the woman who took on that role and played the social hostess for the White House, uh, hence the mistresses of the White House. And sometimes that's a daughter or right. a niece. So whether you had a wife or not, or maybe the wife just wasn't up to it or wasn't into it, they would have somebody who was the formal social hostess, and the term Absolutely. was a mistress. Now, I, I think it would be interesting to look at the evolution of these ball gowns from a prudish or sensitivities point of view. You know, like <laughs> Mamie Eisenhower, I don't think of her as uh, sort of a dish like Jackie Kennedy. Do you, do you get to psychoanalyze sort of the trends and the sexiness of the first ladies over <laughs> the years with their gowns? Well, you know, I don't know that any first lady goes into it to look sexy. I, I think we, what we've discovered in first ladies' fashion is is that really the aim is to look appropriate. Is is the word that you usually well appropriate for with Mamie the first lady. Eisenhower and appropriate for Jackie <laughs> Kennedy is two different kinds of appropriate, if you ask me. Well, actually, essentially, both wore sleeveless ball gowns, though. Truth be told, oh, is that right? Um, that is very true. Mamie's just happens to be pink and has a fuller skirt. Jacqueline Kennedy's is a very slim, uh, that 60s Kennedy line, but is also a sleeveless dress. Actually, the, the top of her bodice is covered in a, a chiffon overlayer, whereas uh, Mamie Eisenhower's is just a, a nice sleeveless V-necked ball gown top to a dress. In a way, hers is probably more revealing. Interesting. Now, do you put much uh, energy into actually describing these things from a, a tour guiding point of view? Do people, when they walk through these exhibits... How much energy goes into the descriptions, or is that just up to people's uh, imagination? We we describe what the dress is made of, who designed it, a little bit about its style. But because you can see that, we spend a little more time talking about the woman herself. The, fir the First Lady's collection is not all about dresses, although mm -hmm. they're certainly a popular part of it. What we, we like to concentrate more on the activities of the woman herself and the role that she's played in shaping America, the contribution she made, and her impact on American society. Now, when you go to the Washington, D.C., if you're on one of these civic pilgrimages, like traveling during the Fourth of July, you can tumble out of the museum and onto the mall, and there's usually lots of action going on during the Fourth of July time. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, some of the things that happen around Washington are the National Symphony Orchestra often performs on the lawn of the U.S. Capitol. And that's a free performance on July 4th. You bring a picnic blanket and bring your picnic dinner and have music under the stars in Washington on the 4th of July. Uh, there are also the fireworks just beyond the Washington Monument. So a lot of families have their favorite place in Washington to see the fireworks from. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about celebrating American history and culture in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by Melinda Machado, who's the Director of Public Affairs for the National Museum of American History, and Lisa Kathleen Grady, who is the Curator of the Museum of American History. Uh, Melinda and Lisa Kathleen, I know uh, the American History uh, Museum has an exciting Lincoln exhibit that will be welcoming visitors throughout the summer. Yes, indeed. We opened an exhibit uh, last year for the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth uh, called Abraham Lincoln, An Extraordinary Life, and it showcases our extremely rare collection of Lincoln artifacts, which includes the hat that Lincoln was wearing to Ford's Theater, the night he died, his office suit, and a wedge that he used to split rails, where the, the rail splitter got his nickname. Oh, I'd love to see that wedge. It's a wonderful piece. It's one of our absolute favorites, and it has its own uh, letter authenticating it from Lincoln's cousin. Lisa Kathleen, when we are tackling Washington, D.C., if we're not locals, sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming. How can you allay some of our fears and stress points about uh, enjoying our capital city as, as a family on sightseeing? I think it's a very friendly, very easily walkable city. So once you take the metro, you can get off at uh, Smithsonian Station, and you're right in the middle of the National Mall, surrounded by the monuments and the museums. Most of the museums on the mall open at 10 a.m. Some of our visitors show up a little bit early, 
the Smithsonian's castle has a visitor information. We call it the castle. It's the first building of the Smithsonian, and it's a fun place to go in. There's a visitor orientation film and basic information about all the different museums to help you plan your visit. During the summer, a lot of the large museums actually have what they call extended hours. We usually close at 5.30, but in the summer, some of the museums stay open until 6.30 or even 7.30. So, you know, some of the tips are if you go a little bit later in the evening and plan on a late dinner, the museums are just much less crowded. Uh, so either go early or go late, but sort of the middle of the day, you'll you'll get the pack of visitors. Um, we have our wonderful National Portrait Gallery and our Smithsonian American Art Museum, and they have different hours. They're in a very vibrant neighborhood called Penn Quarter, surrounded by wonderful restaurants and activities, and they actually keep later hours. They open from 11.30 to 7 daily. And you can check all this on si.edu to confirm the admission times, I'm sure. You know, when you're there on the mall, you've got to pop into the, the National Gallery. It's I, I stepped into that, and I felt like I was in one of the great painting galleries of Europe. All the great masters were there here in our own country. Oh, that's a fabulous resource as well. The National Gallery of Art has two buildings, uh, the IMP building, which is their more modern, and then the classical building, but they're connected by this moving sidewalk. So for tourists and the first time to Washington, it's a fabulous experience to go on this moving sidewalk between the two buildings. Oh, that is, it is just a beautifully presented museum, and I've seen a lot of museums, and I walked into that National Gallery of Art, and I was blown away. Lisa Kathleen, just to wrap things up, I'd like to know if you were sightseeing with friends, where you would grab lunch on the mall. I actually would end up going to the uh, National Museum of the American Indian. It has a wonderful cafeteria. Uh, where you can even get buffalo burgers, <laughs> but a very different taste than the normal mall hamburger. So you, a little variety in your museum eating would be um, sampling the cuisine of American Indian culture, basically. Absolutely, and it's a great walk across the mall, so you get your exercise in while you do it. Good advice. We've been enjoying a little insight into making a civic pilgrimage to our nation's capital with the help of Melinda Machado and Lisa Kathleen Grady, both from the Smithsonian Institution. Lisa Kathleen and Melinda, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The words of old Abe Lincoln, of Jefferson and Payne, of Washington and Jackson, and the tasks that still remain. The little bridge at Concord, where freedom's fight began. Our Gettysburg and Midway, and the story of the town. The house I live in, my neighbors white and black. The people who just came here are from generations back. The town hall and the soapbox, the torch of liberty. A home for all God's children, that's America to me. Next, we get coached on what to look for from your window seat at 30,000 feet. By phone, we're at 877-333-RICK. And you can email us whenever the spirit moves you at radio at ricksteves.com. In just a bit, we'll consider how the Grand Canyon inspires people, including a novelist whose characters exhibit symptoms of being under the influence of nature as they catch butterflies and solve mysteries. 
Anybody who travels spends a lot of time looking out the window of that airplane. And you know, you can learn a lot looking out the window of the airplane, as we're going to learn right now. We're joined by a man who's written a book called America from the Air, a guide to the landscape along your route. Jim Jackson, thanks for being with us. Oh, Rick, thank you very much for having me. This book is incredible. I just uh, had so much fun looking through it. What inspired you to go to all the work to really document all the views from flying all over the United States? Oh, probably too many hours spent on airplanes away from home more than anything else. But my initial flights were, you know, as a child, I guess I was five or six in the, uh, the early 50s, and we would fly from New York to uh, Kansas City to visit my grandparents. Uh, my father loved flying, and he loved looking out the window, and uh, wherever we went, he would point things out as we flew along, and I, I think that stayed with me uh, really until I became a geologist and then studied uh, the interpretation of air photos. And um, I thought for sure somebody had written this book 30 years ago. But when I went looking for it, I never found it. So when I finally had some time having retired, uh, sat down with Dan Matthews and we put together a proposal. And oh, about four years later, the book was published. Thumbing through your book and imagining uh, flying across all this territory, it occurred to me you can learn a lot, not only about geology, but about geography from a plane's vantage point. You know, you can actually see minerals from the air, can't you? Well, you can't so much see minerals, but you can see how the land or the earth underneath the land has either been deformed or is being deformed or is being transformed by geologic processes. Now, I, I know that's a, a big mouthful, but when we go across the mountain ranges in the east, I'm thinking of the Appalachians, uh, the east side of the Appalachians, the rocks have really been tortured, and they've thrown up the ridges and the valleys that we see in Pennsylvania and Virginia and, and the Carolinas. These ridges and valleys from the air look like they're folded. And in fact, they are folded. And then when you get out to the Midwest, really what you're seeing is, uh, depending on where you are, a, a landscape which was previously covered by glaciers, and the traces are there. It's there to be seen. And south of that landscape, we see a land which was largely created by the drainage as those glaciers melted. And then, of course, when you get out in the West, you see the big mountains and the processes that created those. Your book talks about looking specifically at things you'll see along certain flight corridors, but also... Your book talks in general terms how you can notice a delta or a canyon or a volcano and so on. Yeah, well, the idea that we had was to take the routes which are most popular that account for 80 or 90 percent of all passenger miles and give you something specific to look at every 20 minutes, so about every 200 miles. Uh, but, of course, you've got 20 minutes between spots, and there's things to see. And so in each of our uh, entries, we tried to give you a, a context that would place that locality either before you saw it or after you saw it. And so that's, that's why we have the general discussions as well as the very specific discussions. So talking in general terms, you can see land patterns, uh, state boundaries, homestead borders. What, what would you look for in, in that regard? Well, you can't really see state boundaries unless they're a river. Okay. Um, there is one international boundary, though, that you can just about always see. If you're flying a southern route along the U.S.-Mexican border, land use changes on the border are very, very dramatic. And you can certainly see that we have a great image of Mexicali, which shows the border. Will it just be more lush generally north of the border and, and more uh, burned off south of the border? North of the border, we tend to have more irrigation. Uh, south of the border, we actually tend to have larger cities, if there's a city there at all. Um, Juarez is much bigger than its American counterpart, and this, this runs true all up and down the border. And that's uh, the just border. the Macchiadora, all the cheap industries, right? Mostly it's the Macchiadoras. Right. That's, that's right, Rick. They've uh, brought a source of employment, which has drawn people. So that sucks people right up to the border. Also, you can, you can look out and, and you can see things from the sky that you, you wouldn't see really if you were driving around. There's these, uh, you mentioned the ovals in North Carolina, the, uh, the coastal plains there. Right, right. These things were only first recognized by air photos, which I found surprising, but I looked into it and Dan looked into it. And even the topographic mapping that people were doing in the, the first part of the 20th century didn't reveal the geometry and orientation of these, these ovals. But they, uh, they occur as ponds and they occur as low sags, which have been uh, made for our agriculture, drained, and uh, soils and placed on them. But the geometry of them is very peculiar. Uh, they are ovals. The long axis of the ovals are, are aligned in a specific northerly direction. And there are several arguments that are made as to their cause, and we really don't have a, a sound uh, consensus. So they're mysterious. They these. could be uh, sort of UFO things or, or uh, prehistoric <laughs> things, or, or what made them? What, tell us a little bit about those. Well, there, there are two thoughts. One is that they might represent uh, an asteroid or a meteorite shower hitting the Earth. 
and that would account for their geometry and their alignment. Uh, the other thought is that maybe they represent just uh, typical wind patterns, maybe wind patterns that set up during the, uh, the Pleistocene when uh, the winds were perhaps stronger and the, uh, uh, the groundwater was, was quite different due to the different precipitation patterns. Okay. And something a little less mysterious would simply be what you call the, the pizza farms. <laughs> the pizza farms. Yeah, that's Dan's term. I um, like that term because I, when you drive around, you don't quite see it, but up above, you see these uh, round green bits of farm country. Right. This is a way of irrigating the land so that you don't use very much water. The idea is you typically have a, a pump in the middle of the field, which reaches an aquifer some, some distance below. There's a well there. And now you can run the water through these long arms and drop it with a very short fall from the nozzle to the ground of a few inches or maybe a foot. And you don't waste any water in this semi-arid country. And it, it makes for a very efficient means of irrigation, a very efficient use of water where water is, is hard to come by. But from the air, it gives you this uh, astonishing pattern of large circles that go on forever. So you're using water more efficiently, but you're not using a little bit of the land that's outside of the pizza. That's true. There's, uh, there's the corners of the box. The and, corners and of the box. fallow. <laughs> I'm right. Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jim Jackson. And Jim and his partner Dan Matthews have written a fascinating and practical book called America from the Air, a guide to the landscape along your route. And it's basically a tool you take with you so uh, you, when you're gazing out the window, you know what you're looking at. Now, you understand where the planes fly in the country, and you've uh, broken it out to help us be more likely to have routes that we can follow. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Jim. Well, basically, the FAA has set up what are essentially highways in the air, which are radar-guided. And some routes, you will always fly exactly the same track. If you're going from New York to Washington, D.C., you will always go over Dover, Delaware. You're not going outside that corridor. Uh, if you're flying from Seattle down to L.A., you've basically got one route. You're going to go over Portland. The FAA has published maps which show these high-altitude corridors, and so we obtained those maps. But then we wondered, well, how frequently do the planes go over a specific route if there's more than one? So we used a variety of flight tracking software to track commercial flights. I compiled oh, several hundred flights per day, and I did this for about six months. And then we placed these on maps in the book so that if you're flying from Atlanta to Miami, we have a yellow line, and that's where 90% of the flights go. Huh. Uh, the 10% that don't go on that line are probably being diverted uh, due to thunderstorms. And so it's, it's much less random where you go in the air than you might think. This has been the case now for, oh, probably 50 years. And it's because it's an economy to avoid the weather, and it's probably safer too. It's an economy to avoid the weather, and it's economy if you're going westbound to get with the jet stream, and if you're going eastbound to avoid the jet stream. So a plane will fly 100 miles out of the way just to get a free hitch on the jet stream? Absolutely. Yeah, they'll do that on the long-haul flights. The three- and four-hour flights, you know, they have a lot of flexibility, and, and they utilize it. But the short-haul flights, uh, Washington to um, Chicago, New York to Chicago, New York to Atlanta, they don't have a lot of flexibility. And more often than not, if there's weather in the way, you know, they just put the plane on the ground a little bit longer and, until that thunderstorm moves out of the, uh, okay. the flight path. Now, in these big corridors... I guess there's, there's two levels. It's like a double-decker highway, and just 1,000 feet is all you need clearance for planes flying the same route, basically, to go um, past each other in opposite directions? Right. That's the vertical clearance. And then uh, if they're flying in the same route in parallel, they're supposed to be uh, five miles apart. And that's typically the case until you get into uh, uh, that final approach to the airport. But vertical clearance, only 1,000 feet? Yeah, you hope their altimeters are good, and Whoa. they have been. That's interesting. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking uh, with Jim Jackson, and Jim's written a practical book called America from the Air to help us know what we're looking at out the window of an airplane. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Tony's on the line in Houston, Texas. Tony, thanks for your call. Hey, no problem, Rick. Yeah, do you have a comment for Jim about uh, America from the Air? This is more about Europe from the Air, actually. If, if we can make that a subtopic, I was uh, flying in the Air Force for, for several years, and one of the most awe-inspiring sights that, that I ever saw was I was flying from uh, Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia, which is south of Riyadh, up to England, to RAF Lakenheath, and we went just by Mount Etna in Sicily in the summer of '03 when it was erupting, and it was just an awe-inspiring sight to see that from 31,000 feet. Yeah. And uh, it, it was it was just it was awesome to me. I'd never seen anything that like that, and 
and years of flying, even at dusk, seeing the glow. It was just an amazing sight. So what did it and look like? <laughs> I guess it's kind of like you would imagine, uh, the cauldron there. And I've, afterwards, I've been up to Edna myself on land, but seeing it from the air, you know, uh, it was summer, so there was no snow, but, you know, this just dark mass, and then right in the middle, the, the bubbling mm. lava and smoke, and then there were some streams coming down. O three 3 was a fairly strong eruption for right. Etna, so you had the rivers of lava coming down one side toward Catania, and it was, it was a phenomenal sight to me. It's not that rare to be in Sicily when it's at least smoking, and uh, <laughs> I've been there for an eruption, too, and it's quite a spectacular experience. Tony, have you flown around the United States much? When I was in the Air Force, I flew e three which basically it's a 707 with a big uh, radar frisbee on top for the uninitiated and flying a lot of circles and orbits all over the country. And you get a chance to look out the window a lot and see the landscape. It's amazing. You, you get to where you can pick out sites, towns, I mean, everything. At night, do you have a sense of what you're flying over at night or is it just blackness down there? I think over time, you know, when it's uh, more the major metro areas of right. what you're doing, you just see the light and, and you kind of know what it is. The bigger cities that sprawl out, your, your L.A.'s and Atlanta's and Dallas and Houston and those cities, you, you can recognize in a heartbeat. The Northeast is just a mass of, of light. One of the most awe-inspiring sights I've ever seen from an airplane window was coming into Mexico City at night on a very crisp night. And the lights, mm-hmm. you know, 10 million people or whatever it was back then, Lights just stretching forever. It's an amazing phenomenon. And flying into cities like San Diego, into Lindbergh, a lot of passengers, you see, if they've never flown in there, when you're approaching over the city, you get close to the buildings, you see the mountains. Uh, It's interesting to see the looks on people's faces when they're coming into San Diego. Because the airport's right there, because because it's right in the the town. Jim Jackson, uh, Tony's talking about volcanoes. Of course, you're probably not going to see Mount St. Helens erupting, but when you (laughs) you fly around the United States, what are the uh, volcanoes and the special mountains to look out for? The volcanoes are in the northwest, at least the ones that we like that are really tall and and that you will certainly see if the weather is decent. Um, Flying out of Seattle, you'll likely see Baker and Glacier. You'll certainly see Rainier if the weather is at all good. And then coming south of Rainier, you'll go over St. Helens. And even today, decades later, the landscape north of St. Helens where the mountain collapsed and knocked down the trees, uh, it, it is still astonishing. It's a remarkable sight. And, of course, we put it on the cover of a book because of its, of its strong it's a presence. beautiful shot. Crater Lake is quite an outstanding sight from the air. And you very often see Crater Lake. And south of that, you'll see Shasta. Often in the distance, you'll see Lawson. And at that point, you, you run out of volcanoes. The, the other region of a variety of volcanic edifices is in the Albuquerque uh, to Denver area. You see them along the, the Rio Grande. Hey, Tony, it sounds like you're in an airport there ready to get on an airplane. Where are you flying today? Uh, me? I'm flying from Houston to London and then catching a connecting flight to Sicily. Now, you've flown Houston, London before. What do you anticipate seeing as you fly? Uh, well, this time I'm flying with my five-month-old daughter for the first time, so pretty much we're going to be dealing with her and not looking <laughs> out the window as much, so it'll be a new experience. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Tony, and, and well, good luck you. With, your, show, with your daughter on Appreciate the flight. It. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Jim Jackson, and Jim and Daniel Matthews wrote a book called America from the Air. Jim, when you're flying, you're above the weather, aren't you? Airplanes are, what, around 28,000 feet? Uh, 28 to 30. Some of them get up to 40,000. The long haul, uh, big jumbles will, will Is that fly right? 40,000. Yeah. Why would they go so high? Uh, because they can. It gets them out of the low level traffic and are able to go a little bit faster. Uh, the weather is usually far below that, right? All the clouds and, and, uh, the... yeah, most of the time, if you're at 40,000 feet, you'll see no clouds. They'll be below you. You won't be flying through them. In the late summer, when you have the really big thunderstorms, uh, in the late afternoon, say up around Chicago, if you're at 40,000 feet, you might be at the tops or even below the tops of those big thunderheads, but they'll be off the wing. They won't fly through those because you get strong vertical air movements, and they do make a fantastic sight. Anything that you particularly uh, look for when you're looking at clouds? I really look for changes in clouds. I want to see the ground, and I, I'm always hopeful that we'll, Break in the we'll pass out of this cloud bank and have clear air. Let's talk about some specifics you're going to see. Uh, you can look down and actually see Corn Belt. You can see the Corn Belt. It's an interesting area. It's, it's Iowa, and it's an area with ample precipitation, so they don't need to do much irrigation. And the result is they use every square inch for either corn or the other crops, and your fields tend to form uh, nice little squares or rectangles, little boxes. Uh, university campuses. 
Our campuses are typically based on a model of Oxford or Cambridge, and so they have quads. And the quads, of course, are, are lawns, which are surrounded by buildings. If it's on four sides, it's the Oxford model. If the quad has one side open with three sides of buildings, that's the Cambridge model. And usually you can actually see the crisscross in the sidewalks, can't you, in the greens? You usually can. That's right. What about wind farms? Wind farms occur primarily in the west at this time. They're often located downwind of a major pass. We used to see just a few in the Southern California region, but now we see them all over the place. I think we're seeing more of them in Texas than any place else in the country. We see them out there on the high plains. Test tracks for cars. Most of those you're going to find in the Detroit area. The most impressive one, I think, is the General Motors track, which is north of Detroit. And it has this amazing series of uh, tracks which form a a variety of interlocking, curving geometries. Huh. Have you ever noticed all the the baseball fields in the spring season uh, area, Tempe and Phoenix? Down there, you'll see them. In the spring, they'll be green. Often, they'll have people on them, and you won't find people on baseball fields anyplace else in the country. You know, if you're flying, say, in, in February... Great reservoirs, the Lake Powell Reservoir and so on. Now, the Great Reservoirs usually are, are built where we have long valleys and areas of fairly high precipitation. So typically they're at the edges of mountain ranges rather than in the middle of them. Our interstate highway system is quite impressive, and from the air you can see all these clovers and lots of infrastructure. Yeah, highway engineers, they seem to enjoy the geometry of not just the clover leaf, but several other shapes, uh, several other designs. It's almost artistic from the air, I find. Oh, some of them really are, yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated by advertising that's actually designed to be seen from airplane windows. Indeed. As you're coming into most major airports, you'll see a lot of roofs have been um, let out to advertisers, and, and they'll be selling you any number of products. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been quizzing Jim Jackson on what to look for from the air, and he wrote the book on it, America from the Air, A Guide to the Landscape Along Your Route. Jim, let's finish this off just by you explaining to us your favorite route when you're flying to look out the window anywhere in the United States. Well, if I really had my choice of day and weather, I would fly from Seattle to Anchorage. It's about a four-hour flight, and it's one big mountain range after another. And you also get to see one of the most amazing coastlines in North America, really one of the most amazing coastlines in the world. It's marked by several areas of extensive glaciers coming out of the mountains into the ocean. It is just an amazing sight. Wow, it sounds nice. Jim Jackson, thanks for writing America from the Air, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, and thank you very much. Next, we're landing in Flagstaff to meet Margaret Erhart, author of The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. It's a mystery novel set in the Flagstaff of the 1950s, enlivened with the powerful sensuality of the canyon. 877-333-7425 is our number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. To appreciate the great American outdoors, of course, you think the Grand Canyon. But you know, there's more to the Grand Canyon than just um, natural wonder. It can inspire you to be creative, and there's a culture around the Grand Canyon that can be fascinating. I'm joined today by Margaret Earhart, who's written a book called The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. It's a mystery novel about a young woman visiting the canyon and becoming enthralled with its natural majesty, as well as with an attractive local ranger. Margaret, thanks for joining us. 
<laughs> Thank you, Rick. <laughs> now, what an interesting combination. You're a guide in the Grand Canyon, and you've written this romantic mystery novel. Tell us how that works together, appreciation of nature and uh, being a, a novelist. Well, I think uh, novelists have to be great observers. I actually have had very little science training, so I came to the Grand Canyon recently to see it in a way that was different from the way I had been seeing it for the last 30 years. Um, I came looking at the bugs and looking at the the flora as well and the animals, and that has proved so fascinating to me. My experience there was so much richer. Because you looked at the bugs. Now, how can that be? Well, have you ever looked at bugs, Rick? Actually, I have. A highlight of my Costa Rica trip was called the Nocturnal Bug Walk, and we walked Uh down a path that you would just not even give two looks at during the daytime. And at night, Uh, it was a wonderland of fascinating bugs. Is there something similar going on in the Grand Canyon? Yes, although it doesn't just happen at night. (laughs) It's just that we miss so much in our daily lives. We miss so much by not looking closely. And I think novelists, our assignment is to look closely. Now, your book is set in the 1950s, and it has more to do with people than bugs, doesn't it? Well, people who are quite passionate about bugs, yes. I set my book in the 50s for no reason that I could figure out until it was halfway written, and then I realized that was a time in the national parks in general when we were moving from um, sort of Renaissance men at the head of the parks to a more law and order type of culture there. I... I had to include myself in this book, and only partially, of course, am I Jane Merkel, our heroine. She arrives from points east, and she's very young at the time, which I, I am not. And she falls in love with Grand Canyon, and of course, you know, she falls in love with the representatives of Grand Canyon, um, a handsome young ranger, and also she falls in love with catching butterflies. The book has many historical characters in it, which was one of the most fun parts for me to write. I wanted to honor some of the people who, at least in my part of the world, Flagstaff, Arizona, are so infamous and famous, and to put them in a novel was really quite extraordinarily fun for me. Margaret, could you read a few paragraphs of your book just to give us an insight into uh, its style and what you'd like us to understand about the book? Yeah, Rick, I'd like to read to you and your listeners a few paragraphs that have to do with Jane Merkel, that's our heroine, her first sight of the Grand Canyon in daylight. And this might give people an idea of what the canyon looks like. It turns out that it's very difficult to describe Grand Canyon, and I hope I've I've done it justice. But you must come see it. That's really the way you see it. So Jane is driving along the rim with her in-laws, and this is how, how the piece goes. Jane feels carsick but interested, and peeks out across the vast space, bluish with haze. It is the first real look she's allowed herself, her first sight of the canyon in daylight. It's wider than she thought it would be. Somehow she imagined a slice, a sharp cut in the earth. But this is a ragged opening, full of what her in-laws call temples, great vertical slabs of rock, flat-topped mountains, some of them tree-covered, others bare, rising up like islands in a dry sea. And everywhere a great convolution of folded land, everywhere the spidery dry pathways of water etching their way downward in dark lines. If she half-closes her eyes, she can see a great blue cloth, a heavy linen cloth folded upon itself in the blue haze, a lover's dress, a lover's cape flung to the floor, and the sky a blade of blue above it all, and the snow shining on the northern shore. Of course it's a rim, but to her it's a shore. The far shore of a river of air and light, suspended in space, suspended in spaciousness, for goodness sake. Not one bit like the river she grew up with, the muddy, shrieking, crowded, busy, bustling, big-shouldered, stevedored, hot, steamy, frozen, churning, legendary Mississippi. No, nothing like that. Suddenly, it's all too much for her. The grandness, the majesty, the sheer size, the arousing sense of all that rock, sinuous rock. Oh, it's too much. It overwhelms her as thoughts of death do, or the universe, which has no end anywhere, no edge. She closes her eyes and hears Oliver Hedquist say, Ten years of looking out at that miracle, and still I never see it to my satisfaction. Do you, Dottie? 
No, Dottie and Oliver are the couple she's gone to visit. Yeah. You sound almost evangelical about getting people to appreciate the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Well, I suppose you've got a point there. I just find it to be such a marvel. And the more I go there, the more I find it to be a marvel, which is not true for every place. Uh, I think that's about looking more closely every time. Now, there's a fair amount of sex in your book. Do you find the Grand Canyon erotic? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I, I was mean, surprised at not? that, you know. I mean, I just, and when I read it, it, there's a sort of an eroticism about describing it. Oh, yes. Well, I, I think if anybody actually puts themselves um, at the rim of the Grand Canyon and looks down into it and feels the heat if they're going in summer and just lets their gaze drift out at all the colors and land formations. And as I've tried to describe in that passage, it is just a, it is a very sexy place, come to think of it. I, well, you, I, I'm, you, I'm glad you brought that up, Rick. You inhale it. I mean, you inhale it and you hold it in. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be also because there's always that wandering river down at the bottom, which you can see sometimes from some vantage points and not see from others. Um, and you know, you know the river has done a great deal of the carving, though not all the carving of the Grand Canyon, and yet it's hidden. It's a mystery. It's, it's like the unconscious, almost. It dares you to go in. Yeah. Now, you're a, you're a guide, and you, you take people in. What's your greatest delight as a guide when it comes to sharing the wonders of the Grand Canyon? Um, I like it when people enjoy the food I make, but my greatest delight, really, of course, is when I can take them to a place they wouldn't have gone to themselves, which they didn't know about, which may not be in the guidebooks. And they stand in front of it, usually some kind of water, waterfall, because there's a lot of water in Grand Canyon, even though we are in a desert. And the water maybe hits the light, and then it hits them, and they are speechless. Those are the great, great, great moments. That, that requires being still and being observant, to observe how the light hits the water, something that some people need to be encouraged to do, I would imagine. I think you slow down. The minute you get below the rim, I really believe you slow down. Hmm. At least within the first two hours, almost everybody who's coming with me, they, they, everybody settles down. As a guide, I think it's important for you to actually enable people to do that. Yeah, and I'm helped so much by the place. I, I really have to do very little. It's not a hard place to work as a guide because the, the place runs the show. Hmm, that's great. But it, people become very, very still. They become much more observant. Mm-hmm. As much as they think they appreciate it going in, they almost always really understand what that appreciation means when they're in there for a day. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Margaret Earhart, and, and Margaret is a guide in the Grand Canyon, and she's written a mystery novel called The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. Margaret's website is margaretearhart.com, E-R-H-A-R-T, margaretearhart.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We have Mark on the line in Tempe, Arizona. Mark, thanks for your call. Hey, you're welcome. I enjoyed just listening to her uh, description, and I would absolutely agree with her that there's just no good way to describe the canyon. Uh, And I've tried to photograph it, and there's just no way to describe it to people. It's something that you really have to experience. Mark, have you experienced the Grand Canyon recently? Last time I was down was last year. That's fairly recent in geologic time. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, especially when you think about the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Well, Mark, there's a lot of ways you can better appreciate the the Grand Canyon, being quiet, being still, looking at the bugs. What would your tip be? I think my best tip is being quiet, uh, watching the wildlife with your feet in one of the streams after you've hiked about 10 miles. (laughs) <laughs> nice, I can relate to that. Oh, man, I think in any canyon, put your foot in the stream and watch the wildlife. That's a nice way to punctuate your hike. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Mark, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Maria's on the line in Lewiston, New York. Maria, thanks for your call. You're welcome. My husband and I are preparing a, a, a trip to the Grand Canyon, and I heard that uh, there are they organize... Um, rides on horseback and on donkeys along the canyon. And I would like to know if they are by any chance dangerous or not advice for someone like me who has a vertigo, because I have no doubt in riding a donkey or a horse, but if the donkey goes along a very narrow path, very close to the, to 
to the canyon, uh, I wonder if I wouldn't feel afraid. I wonder the same thing myself. Yeah, well, Maria, my, my advice to you is to stay off. We, they're actually mules, and in some parts of the canyon, they're horses. The mules are very sturdy animals, but vertigo is not the right thing to bring into Grand Canyon because everywhere you look, there's great drop-offs. I think you might feel sturdier on your own two feet just walking down a little bit of a ways and then walking back out. That mm. would be my advice. I actually have been in the Grand Canyon with somebody who had vertigo. I didn't know it till we were about oh, a quarter mile in. And it took us about 10 hours to go about three miles. And he was he, he tiptoed along and was quite frightened. And it taught me to ask that question before taking people in, do you have vertigo? Mm. It's quite a lovely place to visit, even if you just walk along the rim of Grand Canyon. I think that's good advice, Maria. Okay. Thank it, you. It doesn't, Thanks yeah, for your it call. doesn't mean you mm-hmm. should, shouldn't go. I like that to walk in a little ways, get your dose, and then you can walk back out and you've, you've had yeah. it. And, you know, when I'm doing any um, mule or donkey ride in some great canyon or whatever, I'm nervous about the sure-footedness of the animals. Now, you've been doing this uh, professionally for a long time. It seems very ginger and, and very fragile, but these beasts of burden, do they ever, like, slip and roll down the mountain and take the tourist with them? They tend not to take tourists, but they break in these mules for a long time, Rick. And their first job is to carry supplies down to Phantom Ranch, which is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Right. And so they carry stuff instead of people. And then when they are, have proved themselves to be very ah. reliable, then they, they carry people. But you do sometimes see that a, a pack mule has gone over. Really? But no, I would trust <laughs> them more than um, most people on their own two feet. Probably better than your own two feet, a, a mule's four feet. Yes, exactly. Okay. Elinda's on the line in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. Elinda, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. Do you have a comment about the Grand Canyon for Margaret? Yes. Um, I've not hiked in the canyon, but one of the things we did that we particularly enjoyed was at night we were able to get a guide that took us to watch the stars sitting our feet right by the edge of the canyon and looking up at all the stars, telling us the constellations. And I've never seen so many stars because, you know, you're far away from electric lights. So it was just a wonderful extra experience that I hadn't known about ahead of time. <laughs> that's great. Looking up instead of down at night, you can look up. Yes, right. that's good. And, you know, I, I've not uh, rafted the Grand Canyon, but I've rafted rivers in uh, beautiful places in Idaho. And in the middle of the night, when I go down to the river, I can look down and see the constellations. It's one of the most <laughs> magic experiences to see the constellations reflected in the water when you're in the middle of nowhere, when it's so dark out. It's just a beautiful thing. I have to say, too, Rick, speaking of the river, when you look up from the river at night, you're often in a very tight canyon or or a narrow canyon, Mm -hmm. narrower than most because it's a mile below the rim. Right. And so you just get a a slim band of sky often, Hmm. and that changes. As you wake up in the night, you can see, ah, the Big Dipper has moved. There's Cassiopeia now. It's wonderful. It's like it's like watching a very small screen instead of the large one. Oh, that's a fun angle on constellation watching. Thank, mm-hmm. Thanks for your call, Elinda. And Harry's on the line in Springfield, Virginia. Harry, thanks for your call. Yes. Hi, Rick. Hi, Hi Margaret. Hi. I, I've uh, done uh, five rim-to-rim one-day hikes uh, across the canyon, and that that's a wonderful adventure and a wonderful way to uh, spend the day. It's a long day, but very enjoyable. <laughs> so rim to rim, that means down one mile and then over and then up one mile. Is that right? Yes, in one day. I've done five of those. How do you cross the river? There are two bridges there uh, just a little south of the Phantom Ranch, one for the uh, South Kaibab Trail and one for the Bright Angel Trail. Yeah. Margaret, what's your it's- take on going rim to rim? I admire people who do it, and I think they're somewhat crazy. It's, tw- <laughs> it's 21, 21 miles one way. I do know people who go rim to rim to rim, and that's really crazy. Wow. But I'll tell you what. You know, it's such a beautiful place to hike. I have never done a, a rim to rim in one day. I just not. Uh, I get distracted by things on the ground, like, <laughs> well, things to look at. But I think uh, many people do, and, and I really do admire their fortitude in doing so. Harry, thanks for your, uh, your comment there. Okay, Rick, good talking with you. You bet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Margaret Earhart, and her novel is The Butterflies of Grand Canyon. It's a mystery novel set in the Grand Canyon area 
about a woman visiting the canyon, becoming enthralled with its natural majesty, and with an attractive local ranger. And Margaret, I gather uh, there's a certain uh, amount of autobiography in this book. There's uh, quite a bit of autobiography in every book, um, no matter who we're portraying. There's probably a little less than usual in this one, except, of course, for the fact that here I am, somebody who's in love with the Grand Canyon, and I hope that people can feel that through my characters. And in love with the big grandeur of nature and in love with the micro-nature, you wrote this, Rocks, bugs, plants, each tells a story and their stories intertwine. Catch a butterfly and you've caught a world. You've caught a story. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, I mean, that butterfly, depending on the species, can tell you so many things. It can tell you that the climate is changing and warming or not. It can tell you stuff about the flora. The butterflies, of course, Mm -hmm. tell lots of stories about what plants are there because they pollinate and nectar on certain plants. As corridors of wildlife move across the land, uh, there are corridors for, for butterflies and bugs as well. We learn about all kinds of things from finding a certain species in a place we've never found it before. Things like the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals is always something that that teaches us about um, specifically climate, and also we can find fossils of dragonflies that tell us what kind of weather was happening a million years ago, or in many cases, 250 million years ago. Wow, and the more you bring to that as a keen observer, probably the more you're able to get out of it. Yeah, I think so. That's right. that's one of my philosophies of life, Rick. Right. Is bring everything to it and, and you will reap more. Margaret, if you're thinking of one quintessential magical moment in the Grand Canyon that we would have if we went there and appreciated the Grand Canyon the way it's impacted you, paint a picture. What would that be? Well, you've spent two nights in the Grand Canyon already as a hiker, and on the third day... Your guide says, let's go somewhere we've never been before. And you clamber around a beautiful waterfall, thinking, why are we going above this fall? I'm perfectly content to stay below it. And you find yourselves, all of you, there's a a small group, let's say, in a meadow that doesn't even have a trail in it because it's so seldom been explored. And the farther you walk in this meadow, the more waterfalls you see, and you climb up above each one. And finally, you can go no farther. But you have laid eyes on more water that day than you ever thought existed in the world. Then you go home, back to your tent, and after dinner, you lie out and look at the stars, and that's what I feel is a good day in the Grand Canyon. Wow. You inspire us and you challenge us to appreciate (laughs) the many dimensions of Grand Canyon. Margaret Earhart, thanks so much for joining us. But thank you. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help today to National Public Radio, OPB Radio in Portland, and KNAU in Flagstaff. Be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. His Europe 101, History and Art for Travelers, and his new Travel as a Political Act books deal with a higher set of road skills. And his country and city guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.